Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived from justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or about someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there is water. What can stand in the way of of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all towns until he reached Caesarea. Thanks. You put it right there. Well done. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Lydia. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, if we haven't got a chance to meet before. Um, And as Johnny said, we are wrapping up our series on the Holy Spirit uh, next week. And so I was thinking about what passage I wanted to do, and I was like, wait, we haven't done the story of Philip and the the Ethiopian eunuch. Like, we can't miss it. We can't miss out on this. This is like an awesome story. And so I was like, please, let me do this. And so... Johnny said, yes, of course. This is really, truly one of my favorite all-time stories in the Bible, though, um, because as someone who really loves all the Old Testament weird stuff that you find there, um, because that is generally where you tend to find, like, the weird stuff in the Bible most often is in the Old Testament, right? Uh, I actually think this passage in Acts kind of gives the Old Testament a run for its money, because there's a lot of crazy stuff happening here. Um, I mean, think about it. Like, we have a divine call, which is unusual in and of itself. And they're like, this angel tells Philip, like, go out of town, like, way out of town, and, like, go find this guy who's, like, bouncing down the road in the chariot and just go go join him. And then, like, have an impromptu Bible story uh, and or a Bible study. And then, like, before it's over, there's a baptism. And then, like, Philip teleports? <laughs> like... What? I mean, the last time we saw that happen was actually in the Old Testament, right? That was Elijah. So it's just a story that's always stuck out in my mind ever since I heard it probably read to me as a kid. Um, 
it's just hard to kind of forget once you've heard this story. And yet, I always sort of find myself surprised by it every single time I hear it or read it. And, and not because of all the weird stuff, not because of all the weird miraculous stuff that happens, because even though that is really cool, that's actually not what gets me. Um, what strikes me, particularly this week as I was thinking about this story, uh, is actually the natural flow of the story. Like, it all happens just so simply. Do you know what I mean? Like, every question asked, there's an answer. It's just sort of like right time, right place. Just very uncomplicated, and just even for all its craziness, the story sort of unfolds in this sort of like beautifully natural way. Very fast, efficient, effortless. I don't know if you picked up on this. This is just kind of how I felt about it reading it this week. Um, and maybe this is the kind of thing that you can really only appreciate when you're older and you've ever been in charge of organizing something. Do you know what I mean? Like you realize just how hard it is to coordinate the simplest of events. Like even dinner between you and like four friends, like over text. Like I'm free Monday. Oh, I can't do Monday. I can do Tuesday. You know what I mean? This is like really hard to do, let alone something as crazy as like a roadside Bible study slash conversion slash baptism. Uh, I was thinking about it, how the story kind of reminds me of um, a friend of mine a few years ago when she took her kids on a surprise trip to Disney World. And she came back and she was like, it was so strange. It was kind of weird. I felt like this magical mom because I actually didn't put into any effort into planning this trip and it all went super well, right? And that is not typical, you know, like usually Disney, plan, Disney trips are like the most highly planned, highly strategic events. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole industry devoted of like Disney mom bloggers who have got what you do, when to do it, down to the minute, right? Uh, it's like storming the banks of Normandy. That's how like well planned these things generally are. But with my friend, it was the total opposite of that. Like she had no plan, no forethought. There was just happened to be an ice storm blowing through Atlanta. And so like power was out, school was canceled. Um, and so they were like, let's just get out of Dodge. Let's go to Disney World. And so she was like, we got there and I was expecting horrible lines and there weren't any. And I was expecting, like I didn't have any reservations and like somehow I remember to pack my kid's princess dress. And so when she was like, oh man, I really wish I had my, my Elsa dress. She was like, I was able to like produce it magically. I don't know how, like there was no forethought on my part. And so knowing what normally goes into planning a Disney trip, she was like, it made it all the more magical and amazing just knowing how little effort actually went into it on her part. And so I was thinking about that and reflecting on this passage, um, the way the spirit just sort of takes the reins in the story without any kind of like human engineering, no, no help from human planning, just kind of places people like chess pieces in the right spot, the right time to achieve his purposes. And it made me wonder, like, why is this so surprising to me? And so then, I, of course, I followed that question. And I thought, what does that surprise reveal about my expectations or my priorities or my set of assumptions when it comes to building the kingdom of God and particularly my role within that building. And I suspect, 
I think, what it is owing to is that I really think at the end of the day, it hinges on me. And I don't mean me as an individual, not quite that egotistical, but as people, it hinges on us as an institution, as an organization, the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I 100% believe that the Holy Spirit uses us, the church. The Spirit, uh, as Stanley Hauerwas writes in his book with Will Willimon about the Holy Spirit that we've been reading together as a staff, as we've been preaching on this series, he writes, the Spirit must have a body on which the Spirit can rest. It first rested on the crucified body of Jesus, then on the, and I love the way he puts this, the full of holes and beaten body of Christ, the church. So of course, the Spirit uses the church. But it is the Spirit that empowers and gives life to and sustains the church, not the other way around. We don't control the Spirit, which is what we so often forget. And so we're surprised or at least I am, when the Spirit blows where it wants, when it wants, without consulting us, and often to our chagrin and the disruption of our carefully planned out strategies. And so I think that this story acts as a corrective on my understanding of the Holy Spirit. The ways that I shouldn't be surprised, but often am, by the Holy Spirit. And so, I just wanted to kind of go through this story. I don't know, kind of a Lectio style. It's a holiday weekend, right? Like, I don't know. It's a beautiful story. And I feel like it deserves our attention. I just wanted to think about it because it's so great. I mean, how the Spirit rather aggressively subverts all expectations, runs counter to all the normal way of doing things. And I want to just kind of go through the story, reflect on that, but also reflect on how the Spirit continues to do that, how the Spirit might be doing that in your life, in my life today. So first off, who is Philip? Um, you may recall that Philip is not one of the original apostles that we encounter at the beginning of Acts. He actually enters the story in Acts 6 when the original 12 call together a meeting. They call together all the new disciples in the community, and they're like, hey, we're kind of busy preaching and that's our calling. And it's, but it's very important that we don't neglect the most vulnerable in our community. They realize that there's people not being looked after. And that's very good and very wise of them. And so they say, we should elect seven men to wait tables. They actually say that, to wait tables and make sure everyone is served so that we can carry out our work of praying and preaching. Because let's be honest, that's the important work. No, they don't actually say that last line but you kind of get that vibe when you read it. Um, and you've been there before, probably. Like if you've served behind the scenes at an event, you get thanked for the work and they think, oh, we couldn't possibly have done it without you. And you're like, yeah, I know, but you kind of think you're the big, you're, you're the main event, right? Um, and so Philip is one of these sort of lowly table servers. And a lot of people interpret this role as uh, the first deacon role that becomes like a, real role in the church. And so while that's all good and right and appropriate that they delegate their tasks, nothing's wrong with that. We all need delegation. By this point, 
If you've spent any amount of time around Jesus or read about him or heard about how he generally operates, you know that he tends to hang around folks who aren't in the positions of power. In fact, that's actually who he tends to use the most are those who aren't in the highest positions of power. So it's rather interesting that while the important apostles are back in Jerusalem with the story that we're reading today, now completely free to go about their duties as of preaching and praying, it's actually one of these lowly deacons, Philip, who is sent in this story rather directly by the angel of the Lord on this very special mission. And so we read, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. And so he's heading out into the desert, no idea why, but he's heading out from the hubbub of the city, the important, you know, the important uh, place. He's heading literally towards the border, the margins, both literally and as we'll see, metaphorically. And so before we go any further, I feel like we've already stumbled upon our first sort of corrective in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Already, the Holy Spirit is subverting expectations. And so, first one, and I never do these sort of like point one, point two, point three. so this is new for me, but first one, don't be surprised when the Spirit goes off script. And so as someone who works in ministry, this is kind of hard for me to swallow. And it reminded me a little bit of what Johnny said last week, if you were here, um, when he was talking about uh, Paul and the wisdom and, you know, the world, wisdom of the world and God's wisdom. And he was like, this is hard for me to hear after, you know, 12 years of theological training to hear Paul be like, no one cares about your wisdom and your persuasive speech. Like, get out of here. Yes, we are called to tasks. The apostles were commissioned and all that's good and that's right and that's proper. But bottom line, the spirit is not beholden to our org chart. I like how uh, New Testament scholar Daniel Kirk puts it. He says, God will not wait for us. God often seems more bemused with us than committed to our affirmation of some as ministers of word and prayer while the gospel runs off untethered in the hands of those commissioned to other tasks or not noticed at all. I love that visual, the gospel running untethered. Uh, Anglican priest and also a New Testament scholar, Esau Macaulay, he reminded me this week on like social media or whatever, he reminded uh, me that this past week was uh, the feast of St. Paul and St. Peter. And so he had this tweet up, he says, Today is the Feast of St. Paul and St. Peter. According to tradition, both were martyred in A.D. 64. And so the, in the same year, the church lost two of its most influential leaders. But its most expansive growth was yet to come. None of us are irreplaceable. Ooh. <laughs> it's good. Because the gospel story is just too big to be contained just in the hands of a few. And so the Spirit will use whomever the Spirit sees fit to spread the kingdom of God. All right, so continuing on. Philip's bouncing down the road, heading down into the desert, not knowing what's going on, what's going to happen next. And the next thing the Spirit tells him is to just go run after this chariot and join it. Now, Philip has no idea 
who was riding in that chariot. Could literally be anyone. But we know, thanks to the text, that who is riding inside that chariot is a really interesting person indeed. And he's described as an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official who's in charge of the Queen of Ethiopia's entire treasury. Now, we're getting a lot of detail on this guy, which is not typical for Bible stories. And so it sort of signals to us, we start getting all these, this big portrait of this person to pay close attention to what we're, what we're supposed to be getting about this guy. Like, what do you not want us to miss, Luke, the author of this? And so it says, first off, he is an Ethiopian. And scholars debate what this really meant back then, but probably given the context, the Greco-Roman context from which this text springs, what Luke most wants us to understand about this guy is that he is dark-skinned. Because that's usually what Greco-Roman, Romans meant when they used the term Ethiopian. And it really just meant like, came from a far off place. <laughs> that's really what it meant. Like, not from around here. And we know that because other ancient texts like the Odyssey, uh, they also referred to Ethiopians as the furthermost of men. So you might describe him as someone who comes from the ends of the earth, which happens to be the words of Jesus at the beginning of Acts, where he says, I'm commissioning you, the original apostles, to go spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You remember this? So, interesting. Now, remember, this is new. The gospel is just now spreading out from Jerusalem. And so this guy is very different from the Christ followers that we've encountered up to this point. So, we know he's an Ethiopian. Second, it mentions that he's a eunuch. Now, we don't know precisely how he came to be a eunuch. Um, there could have been a variety of reasons, we're not told. But it wasn't uncommon for people working in those types of jobs, like a treasury or any kind of high court of, uh, position like that, to be uh, a eunuch. And so this is a really interesting guy because on the one hand, he's in a position of power. He obviously works in a royal court and he's in charge of a lot of things. And he's you know, got proximity to power. But in another context, especially a Jewish context, he was this sort of sexual other and definitely a religious outsider. Okay, we're building this portrait. Third interesting fact about this guy. He's on his way back from worshiping in Jerusalem. Okay, curiouser and curiouser. Why is that interesting? Well, if he was worshiping in Jerusalem, that could only mean one thing. He was there for the temple. Well, why does that matter, you ask? Well, when it came to Jewish law, eunuchs, among others, were specifically excluded from full participation in worship. They were banned because of what it said in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So he would have been prevented, literally stopped from going in, okay? So I think it's just interesting to even just pause here and reflect on what's happening in the story because already so much is happening. The spirit has empowered Philip, little old table-serving deacon Philip, to go chase down the chariot of someone who isn't just different from him, but represents, as I like how Willie James Jennings puts it, he says, this guy represents the very outermost possibility of Jewish life and Jewish faithfulness to God. So really, 
Red flags for Philip, this guy. Honestly, you could stop right there and what a beautiful story this would be. God is literally chasing after this religious outsider through Philip, who has got to feel weird about this, and yet he does it anyway. In fact, I would love to know, we're not told, but what Philip's face was when he ran down the road to find this chariot and, you know, look lo and behold who this person is. Uh, Willie James Jennings writing about the story, he says, throughout the book of Acts, the one thing you know about the coming of the Spirit is somebody has been asked to do what they don't want to do. And what is it that the Spirit wants you to do? It wants you to be with those who you prefer not to be with. So, corrective number two, if you will, I submit to you. Don't be surprised when the Spirit pushes you into spaces that make you uncomfortable. Although we can't really relate to that today, right? Like none of us have any relationships in our lives that we have conflict with, where we feel divided in the ways we think about religion or sexuality or politics. Like we pretty much get along with everybody, especially online, right? Obviously not. <laughs> it's the opposite of that. We're getting more and more entrenched every day in our little echo chambers. Every day seems like it presents another opportunity to unfollow or unfriend or cut someone off because we disagree with them. And yet, this is not the way of the Spirit. And here in this story, we have the Spirit literally pushing this Jew into the vehicle of a guy who he could not have less in common with. Like, they probably disagree on literally everything. And the Spirit says, hey, go bury your heads in Scripture together. Go talk about Jesus. And I just think that it is so funny. <laughs> like, it's so ironic and beautiful all at the same time. But what's the difference, I think, between what's happening in this story and our sort of internet spats with our ideological enemies? Well, one thing occurs to me is that the difference is proximity. Like, unlike a lot of our fractious online debates, they're actually sparing, sharing space together. Like, they couldn't be any closer huddled up in this little chariot. Now, I'm not saying never to engage with anyone online, like, over an issue. I'm not saying that. But what I am suggesting is that if we're always in avoiding embodied communities because it's just uncomfortable, we might be missing out on opportunities for the, the power of the Spirit to come in, move us toward unity, move us towards life together in Jesus. Just a thought. But... The story doesn't stop there. So Philip catches up to him. He hears that he's reading, of all books in the Bible, he's reading the book of Isaiah. Now, we don't know where this guy is in his faith. He's obviously curious. He's obviously hungry. If he's, A, on his way back from worshiping in Jerusalem, or at least attempting to, and he's reading Isaiah on his way back home. But as I said earlier, if he's been to Jerusalem... What he's most likely discovered in that experience is that owing to his status as a eunuch, he was not permitted to worship except outside, out in the margins, the outer courts of the temple. He may have even tried to go in and they were like, sorry, bro, you cannot pass any further. 
And so I can't help but wonder, again, this story just beckons for like a Lectio reading to just get in the story and place yourself there. And so as I was doing that, I kept, I couldn't help but wonder, like, why did that not turn this guy off to the whole thing? Like, why did he not just like walk out then and there, throw, throw the whole thing out? Because, I mean, it's not just that he was, I mean, he was completely rejected, like, personally, <laughs> as a person, was just like, not just, you know, sorry, he himself was barred. Because to the absolute contrary, he's extremely receptive to this random guy hopping into his chariot, asking him to help interpret Isaiah for him. He says, yeah, how can I understand what I'm reading unless someone guides me? So come on in. So even though he's in a position of power, with this job, he's riding in a private chariot after all, he's got a scroll. He's obviously literate, he's obviously a very sharp guy. That doesn't keep him from admitting that he doesn't have all the tools to understand what he's reading. He realizes he's limited. And he could have been completely put off by this temple experience, but he stays curious and he stays humble, which I just find so beautiful and like convicting. But back to exactly what this guy is reading. And this, I think, is the part that just kind of gives me chills. So the text Philip hears him reading is from Isaiah 53. And it's what this section is, is it's considered one of the suffering servant songs, which many early Christians interpreted as a foreshadowing of Jesus. And so this is what he invites Philip to, to explain to him. He says, who is the person being described here? Is it Isaiah? Is it the prophet speaking? Or is he talking about someone else? And so, of course, this is Philip's big moment to share the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so Philip gets to interpret for him what Isaiah 53 prophesies, and that's cool in and of itself. But it doesn't stop there because... In Philip's very act of interpreting Isaiah to this Ethiopian eunuch, this outcast of the Jewish community, Philip is literally setting the stage for what Isaiah is going to prophesy just a mere three chapters from where he's currently reading, which happens to be nothing less than a, a pronouncement a full inclusion to all the outsiders of Israel. And so it's worth reading because it's just so cool and coincidental. And this is why I love scripture so much. I have it up here. So Isaiah 56, three, a mere three chapters from where the guy is currently reading says, do not let the foreigner join the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, aka the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel 
I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. So cool. Because in this holy moment that they share in the carriage, where Philip is interpreting Isaiah 53, Jesus, he's literally performing what the eunuch will stumble upon if he keeps reading just a few short chapters later. That in this coming salvation, AKA the one hinted about in Isaiah 53, the coming of the Messiah, all things are gonna be restored, including the status of the eunuchs, of those on the, on the margins, the outcasts. And here it is, they're literally living it out in this carriage. This future reality promised in Isaiah 56, it's happening right here. Uh, Willie James Jennings calls this moment a borderland moment where people of profound difference enter a new possibility of life together in a shared intimate space and a new shared identity. This is the primary task of the spirit to unite people together who were former enemies under Jesus. So as if all that has not been enough, even though they're in the desert and they've passed what is known to be the last stop for water in Gaza, they come across water. Again, right place, right time. It's like a divine appointment. And so when the eunuch sees the water, he asks, well, wait, what's preventing me from getting baptized? And I love this moment in the story because Philip, as you might have noticed, doesn't respond to him at all. <laughs> and interestingly, the command to, hey, stop the chariot, that comes from the eunuch, not Philip. And I like to think that maybe Philip was sort of stunned into silence here. Like maybe he was like, oh, oh, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't know we were going to do this. I thought this would be like, you know, a few weeks from now or something like that. But the eunuch's enthusiasm is just so beautiful. And I think it's really cool because even though he most likely hasn't even gotten to Isaiah 56 yet, so he hasn't read about this prophecy of the full inclusion of the outsiders for people like him, he has heard enough about Jesus from Philip and the power of the gospel to just claim it for himself. He knows it. He's home. And I think it's so cool if you think about it in terms of what he's just experienced, because even though he's just been prevented from worship in Jerusalem, he's been told no, he knows now because of the truth of Jesus that nothing is preventing him from the full salvation found in Jesus. So let's do this. We can do this right here, right now. The spirit has pierced him to his core so powerfully that he's essentially asking a rhetorical question when he says, What's preventing me? And I think it's really cool because his question is met with silence. And that's sort of his answer, right? Nothing. Nothing's preventing you. He knows it in his bones. And so final, final corrective. Don't be surprised at who responds to the Spirit's invitation. I think for me, uh, it's, it's easy sometimes to become jaded and sort of have low expectations because of the sort of secular age that we live in in North America in 2022. Um, and I say this as someone who has encountered many a raised eyebrow when I have to disclose my profession of being a pastor. So, <laughs> so it's easy to worry sometimes, like how am I ever gonna convince someone to pay attention long enough to the Bible? 
like this old book, which on the surface is just so full of objectionable material, so much to turn people off, so much violence. Like, how will I get them to stay in conversation long enough to even explain it or defend it, let alone, like, show them, convince them that this is good news for their lives? How do I make this happen, is what I often think. And so what the story reminds me is that the Spirit is so powerful that the good news can and has and will continue to break through to those that we expect it to the least. Thinking about this story, theologian Justo uh, Gonzalez, he writes, in studying the history of the church and its missionary progress, we repeatedly see that the great movements the most notable discoveries of unsuspected dimensions of the gospel and of obedience to it usually appear not at the center, but at the margins, at the periphery. The problem lies not in the power of the spirit, but in my underestimation of its capacity to bless those around me. Because the gospel is just that powerful. And while the spirit doesn't need my skills or my wisdom or my fancy speech to make this happen, I do believe that the spirit will continue to use this beaten, beaten up, often full of holes, body of Christ, the church. But all the spirit requires is what it did to Philip, just the faithfulness to show up. So as we, Missio, as we head into communion in a few moments, I did want to read us or lead us um, into communion with some words that are known as uh, the epiclesis. And this is a prayer that calls upon the Holy Spirit to bless the elements, the bread and the wine or the juice that we're about to take part in. And it's a really beautiful and old prayer. And I thought it was kind of cool to read it, just in light of what we've just talked about in terms of the Holy Spirit being the sustainer of the church and what unifies us. And so I thought it was appropriate to enter uh, communion with these words, but I know they're old, and so it's helpful to see them as well as hear them. So just, you can read along as I pray this. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father in the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>